I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that will help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview from 2012 is with Professor Meredith Hall, author of the memoir Without a Map. We talk about her pregnancy at age 16, how she was shunned by her family in school and forced to give the child up for adoption, and how the experience was never acknowledged by anyone. I remember that before this interview with Meredith, I worried that it might be difficult to talk about the reality of what had happened without making her feel protective of her parents. That's one of the biggest challenges of asking about personal stories on the radio. People are worried that they will hurt someone they love, even when they have legitimate grievances. In Meredith's case, her mother had kicked her out of the house and hidden her pregnancy from others, which had hurt her badly. Nonetheless, this was her mother, who she loved and felt loyal to. I wasn't sure it would be possible to navigate this territory in a way that felt true and respectful to all the people involved. As you'll hear, Meredith was able to honor all of it. The anger that saved her life, and the profound way that she was finally able to understand her mother as she grew older, using her own deep grief as a way to expand her capacity to love. Here's my conversation with Meredith Hall. Welcome to Safe Space, Meredith. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'd love to start out by having you tell me in brief the story of what happened to you so many years ago. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, and um, in the mid-60s, I was a very small-town girl. I really had no experience in the world, and I made the terrible mistake of getting pregnant when I was 16. Getting pregnant in that time and in that small town meant that I was expelled from school and would not be allowed back into public school in the state of New Hampshire. And it also meant that the shaming that I brought to my family was so acute that my mother uh, refused to allow me to stay at home. I had to go someplace. And it was a given with no conversation whatsoever that this child would be sent into adoption without any preparation of me. And finally, my father stepped in. My parents were divorced, and my father stepped in and told me that I could stay with him and his new wife, Catherine. So I did that. I I had managed to hide this pregnancy until I was well into my fifth month. So um, at that point, I was expelled from school and then moved over to my father's house. And eventually, the baby was born at the end of May and was given up into adoption. And I heard you say, with no preparation of me. And tell me what you mean by that. 
Well, I think the stories of teenage pregnancy carry a theme of this unpreparedness, and I think it's a an emotional and physical unpreparedness. I had never known, uh, I came from a very small family, and I'd never known anybody who was pregnant, so I'd never watched a pregnancy or met a baby or watched what happens with a baby. And I also uh, was left in a silence that was created around this event that was intended to last all my life. My writing this book when I was in my late 50s was finally my move against that silence that had been um, required of girls who got pregnant during that time. So the pregnancy um, inevitably led to adoption, but uh, the girl typically went through that pregnancy terrified and with absolutely no information and nobody talking to her about anything. That's part of what's so striking in your book is that you're there, you're kind of left alone in your father's house. He's away on business, as is his wife. Uh, One of the things that struck me so much is you were 16 years old. You'd never stayed a night alone in a house before. And suddenly you were this outcast and expected to do that for long stretches and not bat an eyelid. When, as I wrote the book, of course, there are realizations that uh, come to any writer. And one of those realizations was what a, a homebody I was, that I was really a mom's girl. I was very attached to my mother and my brother and sister and was um, un- I had no tools to bring out into the world. And uh, having this baby really catapulted me out of my mother's home and for this very brief period of time into my father's and stepmother's home. I didn't know the home. I was not had not spent time there. And as soon as the baby was born, my mother did manage to find a small private school for kids who had screwed up that took me for my senior year. And uh, I was lucky at that. They saved my life. It was um, just a coincidence that they had the tools that they could bring to this and help me in the way that they did. Um, But I graduated. uh, I went to that school 90 days after my baby was born and removed from me. And I graduated nine months later, headed out into the world as an 18-year-old, headed into Boston and Cambridge, and uh, really with no attachment to family, absolutely nobody helping me at all. So I want to backtrack first, because you described this boarding school that you went to as really very idyllic. I mean, it just sounded so lovely. And yet you were forbidden to talk to anyone about it, and you, in fact, were given the only single room for fear that you might, I don't know, that someone might see you changing and see your belly perhaps, or that someone might find out you might be moved to to confidences. And that was so painful that even there, such a progressive, open place, there was an absolute taboo. There was, and the uh, the wonderful headmistress, Mrs. Emmett, this was a Waldorf school, a Waldorf boarding high school in New Hampshire. Um, and Mrs. Emmett uh, welcomed me saying, although you have run amok, we will allow you to come. And that really was the story. You're right. It was a very progressive place. And yet they were very protective of the girls and the idea that they had among them uh, a contaminant. I really was a contaminant. And uh, they 
certainly did everything they could to protect me and um, and haul me back into the world because I came to them in very, very bad shape. Um, but there was always this taboo. I was not allowed to speak to anybody. I actually went to a reunion after my book came out, and it was only then that my classmates, I had, there were 11 of us in my class. This was a very close group, and none of them had known this story, and it was quite devastating to them to hear it when we were in our late 50s, to know that I had spent that time among them and had been friends all these years since with this story that I didn't feel could be spoken. Right, to become aware of how much pain you were carrying that they, as your friend, had not known. Yes. Very humbling. Yes, and I think confusing for friends who understood that in most ways we were very close friends. So I want to talk about this idea that you were a contaminant. You begin the book with with an essay about shunning. And... um, you know, I, it's, the shunning is not a word you hear much. I think I thought of it as sort of almost like a biblical word from a long time ago. Um, but I wondered if you could talk about, you said a little bit, but about what it meant, what it felt like to be shunned. Maybe even an example of how you experienced it. Well, the shunning was in some ways sort of institutional. It's a pretty clear message. Uh, I was an excellent student and... Um, My parents, who did not have college educations, dreamed that I was going to be a great scholar and go to a great college. And all of a sudden, at 16 years old, I was expelled from public school. And so already the institution is stepping in and shunting aside this very, very bad girl, removing her from the other students and punishing her, ending. Really, at that time, it felt to me that it was ending all hope in my life, that the life that I had known was completely over and would never be uh, put together again. And it eventually was, and uh, I think in very rich ways, but I had no way of knowing that when I was 16 years old. And the institution didn't uh, hope for that for me, I think. Um, But the shunning involved a kind of gossip in town. There was a a kind of frenzy of gossip and the pleasure that that brings when somebody among you is sort of taken down. It was a very ugly thing. And uh, many of those classmates, I was very close to them. It was a small town and I had been to school with these classmates from the time I started kindergarten, many of them right through high school. And I've heard since from them that they are very apologetic and have asked my forgiveness, saying, you know, I was only 16 years old and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but there was a, a gathering together of the, of the good people, the people allowed to stay inside, and a pushing out of the bad person. And it's quite volatile. It's a very astonishing situation. And it literally involved um, the times that I did have have to be back at my mother's house. I limited those times, but when I did need to be back at my mother's house during the pregnancy, those last months of the pregnancy and after the baby was born, um, I worked very hard not to encounter any of the people I knew in town because they would cross the street and not speak to me and gather in groups and talk about me as I passed by. It was a very um, sort of a choreographed dance that is the shunning. 
You describe driving back to your mother's house on your birthday and her kind of shoving you down to the floor to hide you so that no one would see you in the car. That memory is actually one of my most confusing memories. Um, My mother had been a very, very kind and funny and patient and uh, high-energy mother. She was very involved with her three children. She was an only uh, a single parent. And somehow we went in a matter of um, just an overnight, a minute, to her being a mother who picked me up for a doctor's appointment and um, then brought me home that evening for my birthday in my family home. She had already told me I could not be there, so this was a visit being allowed back in the family home. And as we drove through my town, she made me get down on the floor of the car uh, so that anybody we drove by wouldn't know that I was in the car and pregnant. And uh, it was, uh, if I didn't understand the terms of this shunning and this outcasting, that is, for me, the moment where it became most clear to me. It's sort of overwhelming even, really, to take it in and to read about it. And I wonder, you know, I imagine that the shame was ultimately internalized by you. That Did you come to believe that you were bad? Yes, I absolutely did. I think um, uh, the, my family dynamic is very, com- continues to be very complicated. My mother is dead, but my father is alive and my sister and brother. And the outcasting rippled through uh, several years later to involve the whole family. What does that mean? Well, uh, my new stepmother, in an argument that she and I had on the telephone when I was 19 years old, so this was three years later, abruptly told me that she didn't want me coming to their house ever again, and I thought it would blow over and that my father would, of course, stick up for me, as fathers should, and he did not do that. And... um, So it started at 19 years old, a lifelong outcasting from my father's life that was very, very painful for me. I had by that time, it seemed, lost both my mother and my father. And my brother and sister, for complicated reasons, participated in that outcasting. So they and their families um, have, over all these years, this is many decades now, created an environment with my father and stepmother. They, They have a family there. And I have not been allowed in my father's house since that day. So it got very complicated. So I definitely carried feelings of worthlessness, that I was not worth love, and a powerful sense of shame. A girl that got pregnant in the 50s and 60s was told that she, by her doctor, by her family, that she was so bad in the world that she must leave this child alone forever, never make any contact, never try to find the child because she would is a contaminant and uh, would harm the child. And so the message of shame is very profound. There's the implication that you can't possibly know who the father of this child is because girls like you, of course, have multiple partners. So there's an effort to create shame. Um, but I think that I actually received uh, some sort of personality characteristics from both my mother and father 
that have served me very well. I came out of the devastation of that first year or two and found that my best tool was to be very angry. And anger is not something I would recommend to my own children as a coping mechanism. But I think now that it really saved me. I became a very, very defiant and angry girl uh, in my head, calling out to the world every day, in every way, watch this. You think I'm going to become a nobody. You think this is going to destroy me. Watch what I do. And that was that anger that really became fuel for me. It sounds like it kind of guarded your dignity yes, in some way. Yes, it did. And dignity is a very, very hard thing to come by with that kind of experience behind you. When you're being pushed to the mm. floor of the car. Yes, right. Mm. You said to me when we were talking ahead of time that you've received, you know, hundreds of letters from women who were in the same situation. And that one of the things that they've said is you weren't angry enough. <laughs> and I'm struck to hear you now. And I'm curious, um, how much angrier did they want you to be? Well, you know, I think that anger disappeared for me. I married uh, a little bit later than my peers did and um, had two sons in that marriage. And the from the moment I got pregnant with that first child, um, everything about the universe shifted. And any anger that I ever felt just evaporated. And uh, I was now a mother. I had the child that I had needed so much. And um, so I think that... It sounds almost too good to believe, though, when you say it just evaporated instantly. Is that well, really... Was it that easy? Uh, yes, except <laughs> for uh, direct contact with my siblings uh, about the family issue. Yes, it was. The... the um, I didn't have room inside me. I I had this glowing light inside me from the birth of this child. And it, mm. it was just uh, the need for that child was very profound. And I was a very, very happy woman and a very fulfilled woman. Um, and then I had another, my second son, three years later. But I, I think that readers felt that I allowed my parents, my mother and my father individually, to come through my story um, not beaten up enough. Looking I, too good. Looking too good. And uh, I did not, in writing this book, feel uh, anger at my parents. For me, the book quickly became a place in which I was searching for how people who love can do harm. Uh, I recognized very quickly that neither my mother nor my father intended to do harm and that their love for me had been intended to be protective. Something went wrong, and so the mystery to unravel, the mystery to explore, and really there are no answers. I, there are no answers. But the, the great question is, how, how is it possible that love can go so wrong and create so much harm. And uh, anger, to me, doesn't help in finding the answer to that. I'm imagining that your mother was shunned, too, in her circles. She definitely was shunned. It was problematic for me because she wanted me to know that 
my experience was not the significant experience. The significant experience was that she felt that she was losing friends. Um, she didn't actually lose close friends, but I'm sure she was talked about and paid a price in town. I easily imagine that people gathered in groups and spoke about her as she wandered through the store and didn't speak to her. I think that very well might have happened. You said to me, too, something that I'd love to ask you to say, which is about how your defiance, how you began writing this book with that spirit of defiance, like, you did this to me, mm-hmm. and the outrage of it, and wanting <laughs> the world to know, <laughs> and how at some point you began to see that just like your parents, you too had abandoned a child. And yes. I wondered if you could tell the story of that This was discovery. a very difficult process uh, as I wrote the book. Uh, when I sat down to write this book, I had won this fabulous writing award and actually considered writing a book of poetry or a novel and ended up thinking, well, I'll pursue the personal narratives that I've done a little bit of work in. And I once I made that decision, I had a very clear sense of, okay, this is going to be my opportunity to break the code of silence that had been imposed on me since I was 16 years old and do the forbidden. I was going to tell the world what these people had done to me. Now it seems laughable because um, it's no kind of book if that's where it starts and ends, and I, I had to realize that very quickly. What I ended up having to reckon with was the fact that my mother and my father each loved me. I was their daughter. And that, in fact, I had a child whom I loved very profoundly, and I had abandoned him, and I had very little to offer him. I met him when he was 21 years old and felt that I had very, very little to offer him in compensation for the circumstances of his life as a result of my carelessness. You sense that it had wounded him? Yes. I think that um, I think that it's possible for an adopted child to carry one absolute truth every day of their lives, and that is, I have so little value, my mother gave me away. I think we have a a cultural story, a myth, that says, your mother loved you so much that she gave you to somebody who could take better care of you. Uh, That was not the case with me. I was not asked, and I, I spent my entire life feeling that a baby had been taken away from me and given to somebody, anybody. And his placement was a very, very, very bad placement. He suffered Mm. very badly in that family. And um, so that adopted child returned to me needing a lot, but whatever I wanted to give him could never undo that life. I understand that you're in ongoing contact with him. Will you tell me a little bit about how your relationship with him has evolved? I think we recognized in each other from the moment uh, we met. Uh, a social worker in New Hampshire organized that reunion and and forced us to go through many, many, many weeks of writing letters back and forth. And uh, I kept calling her saying, I'm ready, I'm ready, do it now, I want to meet him today. 
And she held us off on that, and it probably was a good thing. We had time to uh, adjust to the idea of how much was going to change, but we had no idea how much was going to change. This is, I say in my book, this is not a fairy tale. This is a wrenching, confusing, profoundly challenging process to construct a relationship. You know, love is not the question. The love that my son and I feel for each other is palpable. Uh, We need each other and love each other very, very much. But how we can come to each other free of the degree of anger and the degree of guilt and the degree of fear uh, of what might come... um, that was the challenge, how to find each other without allowing this effort to be sunk by the enormity of these unresolved feelings. And um, I really think in the end, we kind of bobbled through it. And in the end, it was the largeness of the love that we share for each other. And a, a, a very interesting sense of protectiveness about each other. It would, it, doesn't surprise me that I feel that toward my child, but it did surprise me to see how protective he is of me. You spoke about the burden that an adopted child might carry of feeling that he had his birth had caused you pain, which was a new thought for me. I, I wonder, and it speaks to that protectiveness. Could you say more about that? I think that one of my son's great needs when he met me was, I, I think actually he he came into that meeting believing that he, all he needed to do was to see that I was okay. And I know as a birth mother that I had told myself over the years, if I could just see that he is okay. Um, mm. Of course, the need that there's no way to walk away from it once you say hello. So that didn't work for very long. But I think that the adoptive child might carry a very deep feeling that they are responsible for the grief in the birth mother's life. And um, there is really very little I can say that undoes that belief. So I want to end with one last question about that grief, um, because one of the things that was so striking to me is how silently you bore it over so many years almost unimaginably. So reading it, the the grief I felt as your reader was just overwhelming at times. And um, I wonder, now that you've finally been able to speak it and you've spoken it a lot and you've written it, has it changed your relationship to that grief now that it's no longer silenced? Yes, I think that uh, had I not had this grace in my life of having this son uh, enter the family where on uh, we speak daily and uh, as I do with my other two sons and um, at least emails winging around between all of us. And um, I think if I had not had that bomb against that grief, the story might be different. I don't know if writing the book actually eased that, but I think the grief that I carried was the grief of a 16-year-old who was dropped suddenly out of her universe and left sort of drifting out in 
a, a dark space with no protection whatsoever, and giving birth to a baby. A, a girl or a woman loves a child that she gives birth to. And to lose that child with nobody, not one person ever said to me, you had a baby. Nobody. Nobody ever acknowledged to me you had a baby. The closest we got was the headmistress at the school saying you ran amok. And so I think that the unspeakability of that grief caused something in me that is very, very large and with me always. I think that it's not grief anymore. I actually think that it's a gift. I believe that we are here to learn how to love largely and profoundly. And I think these these losses have led me maybe more willingly to the idea that my work is to love and um, to figure out the ways in which grief and loss and love really are all this, the same expression of the human experience in the world. Meredith Hall, I'm going to have to end. Thank you so much for your beautiful words. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was my 2012 interview with Meredith Hall, author of the memoir Without a Map. When it first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about the different forms families take, looking at adoption, surrogacy, same-sex couples, and single parenting. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series, or any of our other past shows about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. <laughs>